Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. What makes a craft beer, Tap Lines listener? It's a question that's bedeviled the Brewers Association, the segment's largest trade group, for over a decade. In 2012, the organization issued a press release entitled Craft vs. Crafty, laying out the case for its institutional definition of craft beer and implicitly the case against non-standard, non-light, crafty beers manufactured by multinational brewing firms. This was just one year removed from Anheuser-Busch InBev's infamous acquisition of Chicago's Goose Island Brewing Company, so you might have figured the release was a response to the world's biggest macro brewer taking increased interest in the then-booming craft brewing segment. And it was, to an extent. But more than that, it was a response to Blue Moon. Brewed for the first time in 1995, the wheat beer had all the tenets of a bona fide microbrew. The creative label, the full flavors, the cute tongue-in-cheek name, and so on. But it wasn't created in some bootstrapped garage brew house by DIY beardos. Blue Moon came straight from the pilot brewery of Coors Brewing Company, which was then, as it is now, one of the biggest beer companies in the country. As the 90s gave way to the aughts, the fragrant, citrusy beer would find serious traction with the American drinking public, expanding the national imagination beyond light adjunct lager and helping to fuel the growth of the then-still-shaky craft brewing industry. But despite that, the fact remained that Coors was a behemoth compared even to the Sierra Nevadas and Boston beer companies of the category. Sure, Blue Moon was a tiny brand within it, but with all those resources and runway, could it really be considered a craft brand? By 2012, the Brewers Association, some of its constituents, and vocal craft beer enthusiasts across the country didn't think so. But I think it's worth a closer look. Joining Taplines today for part one of a two-part episode about Blue Moon's historic, controversial rise is Keith Via, the brewer who created the original recipe for the Belgian-style beer at Coors after earning his PhD in brewing from the University of Brussels in the mid-90s. From the corporate offices in Golden, Colorado, to the ballpark brew house where he perfected the brand's eventual smash hit recipe, to the bars nationwide where he tried to get bartenders to actually serve the stuff, Via says Blue Moon's success was anything but preordained by its corporate backing. In other words, definition schmefinition. It's Keith Via, it's Blue Moon, it's how the original crafty beer was born, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Listeners, we've got a rare treat for you. It's something that we've never had on this podcast here at Tap Lines. Uh, it's, a, it's an unusual opportunity. You might say it only happens once in a blue moon. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, the arrival to the August Tap Lines roster, guest roster, of one Keith Via Keith Welcome to Taplines, my man. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully we'll have a good uh, hour discussion here and <laughs> have some fun. We're going to have some fun, I promise it. Taplines listeners, uh, for those who are not aware, uh, my little goofy little pun just a moment ago, Keith uh, is the man uh, who had the plan back in the mid-90s 
who was uh, responsible for the development of one of the most, if not the most influential uh, beer in the in the craft beer segment here in the United States, Blue Moon, um, which would go on to become, you know, by uh, many metrics, although some people don't consider it a craft beer, and we're going to get into that, by many metrics, the best-selling craft beer, uh, and, and opened the eyes and uh, palates of the American drinking public to this idea um, that there was uh, just a broader, more exciting, more flavorful world that beer could bring you to. Um, Keith, you're here today to talk about, uh, you know, how Blue Moon came to be, um, you know, how it was initially received, all the nitty gritty stuff that we like to get into here on Tap Lines. But before we do that, uh, you, my friend, uh, refuse to hang up your laurels. You refuse to, uh, or hang on your laurels. You refuse to hang up your, uh, your brewer's boots. You're, you're still brewing. Uh, many people may know this, but some may not. Uh, you've got, uh, a brewing concern that you and your wife founded, uh, what, the late last decade, right? Oh, uh, that's right, Dave. Yeah. Uh, when I retired from Blue Moon, uh, that was the very end of 2017. Yeah. And my, my wife and I started a, a new venture called Seria Brewing Company, where, uh, we were making alcohol free beer and infusing it with cannabis. And, uh, by cannabis, this was real, the real stuff, THC and CBD. Yep. From marijuana, and we sold it in Colorado and California, and um, and then uh, the the cannabis market as as it kind of matures in each state, it softens up because people start searching for the biggest bang for the buck. So how much sure. THC per dollar, and with beverages. Uh, that's hard to deliver a great price point. And so we said, okay, we're going to get out until it's federally legal and focus on alcohol-free beer. So we did. And of course, now the NA slash AF market is just booming here in the United States. Absolutely. Man, have you ever thought about just, you know, you've been on the cutting edge of so many different segments uh, it strikes me as, would it be relaxing to you or maybe just kind of boring to just brew a normal beer? You know, <laughs> like you've always got to be right on the vanguard, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I get bored with just regular beers. And <laughs> what, I, uh, it, what I do in my spare time is I try to, uh, you know, I pick something that I like and, and try to make it even better. So I, the latest one I did was, uh, uh, oh, Vinny and Natalie, uh, they, they make um, Pliny. Uh, the, Over the, Russian uh, River. IPA. Yeah, 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 Russian River, and so I, I, I like that, and so, so I thought, okay, if I was to do this, how would I make it better? So I, I, my little pilot brew is a two barrel system, uh, right here, and uh, so I got to work, and I, I made what I think is a, is a much better version, uh, very flavorful, easy to drink, much better head, uh, a little bit better body, and um, and just something that that I thought really is good for the the winter holidays. <laughs> but I, I do that, I. I Look at something that's in the market, and I say, what what would I do better uh, to make that that a, a much more enjoyable drink session for me? And, yeah, uh, yeah. So that's 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 kind of my hobby. Right on. <laughs> I, I mean, for some for some listeners, uh, the idea of a better Pliny might be fighting words, but I, you know, for others, might be excited by those. I, you know, the idea of constantly tinkering and obviously you are and trying to advance the ball. Very cool, man. Yeah, it really is. It's fun because uh, uh, as you may or may not know, I got my PhD in brewing at the University of Brussels in Belgium. Yes. And over there, they instill in you to be creative, you know, to never be satisfied uh, 
which is good and bad because if you're a production brewer trying to make the same product day after day, week after week, year after year, that's bad because you don't want to change something like uh, like like Fat Tire or like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Those are products that are classic, and you just want to keep them as consistent as possible. Right. Uh, whereas uh, from the the Belgian perspective uh, that I learned, it's like you know how can we make things better? What can we test to see if it even makes a good beer what spice what herb what fruit uh what what protein <laughs> you know all, all kinds of things sure and so the sky is the limit and once you're exposed to that you almost get bored uh if you, if you stay in the realm of classic brewing for too long let me ask let's let's go to brussels let's go to the beginning of your career because i think this is a great way to jump into it uh i'm i'm let's see where did you start you started in the uc system right Brussels was not your first step towards becoming the brewer that you are today. How did you get into brewing, Keith? Where did it all begin? Well, I was an undergraduate at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Mm. And uh, back then, uh, Boulder was known for having pretty cutting-edge science, uh, especially molecular biology, working with DNA and RNA and all that stuff that nowadays is pretty pretty common. Back then, it was cutting-edge, and uh, there were two professors who ended up winning Nobel Prizes there uh, along the lines of DNA research. And um, uh, so I was exposed to all that, and I, I really loved it, and I wanted to become a, a pediatrician. Uh, so so I was heavily into uh, that research and everything. And uh, it, wasn't, it was only about uh, three months before graduation that Coors put this advertisement up in the, the hallway of the molecular biology building saying mm -hmm. that they were looking for a, a, someone to do research with their yeast and their fermentation and brewing. And of course, as, as a young student, you think, you look at that and say, wow, that's, that's what a cool opportunity. Cool job. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I happened to, to be a home brewer as a, as a hobby because, uh, prior to that, uh, Let's see, it was 1982. I happened to be on the Pearl Street Mall walking, and there were a lot of, not a lot, there are a few people from the Brewers Association. And, and as, you, as you may know or may not uh, know, the Brewers Association headquarters uh, used to be right at the end, the west end of the Pearl Street Mall. Sure. And that's where Charlie Papazian started it. And, um, and they would uh, have different things like uh, learn how to homebrew, you know, hand out little pamphlets and stuff. And, and that's where I very first got exposed to the fact that as a person, you can actually make your own beer. I, I never even thought that a person could make beer. I always thought yeah, yeah. You know, it came, it came from big breweries. Magically. Somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I picked up a, a pamphlet. I learned how to brew and homebrew. And, uh, and so it was a hobby. And so by the time I was ready to graduate, uh, Coors was looking for a researcher. And so I went and I talked to them and, uh, you know, preparing myself for medical school, I had co-authored a couple of articles, which mm -hmm. in those days, uh, thank goodness my professor included my name, but in those days it was rare that an undergrad would do that. Right. And so I, I took that as, as well as, uh, I was working in a lab. So I took my notes up to Coors, showed them. And of course, there were a lot of other students that had seen that uh, advertisement that right. wanted to talk to Coors, and uh, they they told me I was the most qualified, and they said we'd like to have you the next or the day after you graduate if if you want. So that's where you know I had to go and uh, get back into my uh, dorm and look in the mirror and say you know do you want to work with sick people or beer <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> 
And I thought, well, I'll choose beer for a year or two just to make sure I like it. Uh, and if I don't, I'm headed to medical school. So, so I was there for uh, two years and I loved it. I loved doing brewing research. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go back to CU Boulder and get my PhD in brewing. And so I told them I was going to quit and go back. And they said, well, hold on. What if we send you to Belgium to get your PhD in brewing? And I thought, okay. So, so I, uh, they sent me and paid for everything. And when was that, Keith? When you graduated from undergrad? When graduated in 1986. It was May of '86. Okay. Uh, end of May. Uh, I graduated so on a two years Wednesday. Of co- gotcha. Yeah, started on a Thursday <laughs> and two years of course, <laughs> and uh, started in Brussels in 1988, uh, September of 1988, and uh, it was the University of Brussels, the Flemish-speaking one, because over there. Uh, for any of your listeners who've never been to Belgium, it's a bilingual country where they speak French generally in the southern part, Flemish, which is an old version of Dutch in the northern part. Uh, they speak a little bit of German in the southeastern part of Belgium. And in Brussels, it's a strongly bilingual city. So you really have to know a little bit about uh, French and Flemish to yeah. uh, function in the in the society. Did uh, you know any Flemish before you went over? No. <laughs> what about, do you know any French? No. <laughs> but I, I, I knew Spanish and I knew Italian because up at the University of Colorado, I, I learned uh, Spanish. I learned Italian. Actually, high school was Spanish. Uh, high school, I also took German. And I, uh, for me, languages kind of come easy, so I, I can learn them fairly quickly. So I, going to, to Brussels, I knew Spanish. I knew uh, uh, German. I knew Italian. And so learning French and Flemish was was fairly, I won't say easy. It was, it was a little tough, but I, I got through. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because I had undergrads who spoke only French and some who spoke only Dutch or Flemish. So I had to learn those languages. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you pursue your PhD at uh, in at the University of Brussels. Um, what's the PhD in? Is it's a brewing discipline, correct? What was the? Do you remember what the actual like discipline was? It so it says uh, my uh, PhD says it's a PhD in science with mm. a, a brewing specialization. Gotcha. So the general one is science. Got uh, it. And then of course you know in science you've got all these different disciplines, but mine was uh, brewing, and my specific topic thesis was around the world of diacetyl. Uh, back then, I cloned some genes into the brewer's yeast uh, to, to get rid of diacetyl so that your aging uh, cycle was shortened from mm. you know, several weeks down to just a few days. And none and, of those uh, off flavors that people now uh, sometimes complain about, maybe if a brewery doesn't have their quality control dialed in or whatever, you might be tasting diacetyl, listener. And, and uh, Keith, way back, when was that? Like early 90s at this point? I mean, late 80s, early 90s. Keith is yeah. already uh, working on new ways to innovate. We know that right out of the brewing process. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a lot of fun because when, when you actually uh, play with that brewer's yeast and clone a gene into it, and it, it actually works, and you, and you do the scientific measurements and say, wow, uh, this actually works. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's really surprising. And uh, uh, I mean, science is really neat because you can plan something out, do the experiments, measure everything, and find out that it really works. Um, and... and take a step back and say, wow, that was awesome. But then there's other things where the art of brewing, you just have to trust in the art because, you know, that science won't take you anywhere. Like, like uh, using spices, that's, mm. that's really tough. Uh, and, and even uh, when I left Blue Moon uh, working with marijuana, because there's not a lot of science behind marijuana. There, right. Now there's 
more science, but there's not still not as much as hop hop uh, science. I mean, that's been done for years. And so there's a lot of information in regards to hops. When you were in Brussels, were you still home brewing? Like, or were you mostly treating brewing in or like dealing with brewing in the lab? Like what was your relationship to beer when you were pursuing your PhD in Brussels? Uh, well, a couple things. Number one, my professor was a consultant to a lot of different small breweries mm. in, in the Brussels and Belgium. So I would tag along with him as he consulted. So, uh, uh, Duval Mortgat, you know, the Duval Brewery. I, I went there a lot because uh, they would have uh, issues as they were uh, aging their beer, slight off flavors. And so I learned from him how to, you know, how to uh, diagnose and, and address these off flavors they were having. I went to all the Trappist breweries, the Sour breweries, a lot of the little craft breweries down in the Ardennes. Uh, so anyway, I, so that was one, one aspect of it. The other aspect is a lot of my fermentation experiments were done in the lab in mm. What, what were called uh, tall tube or EBC tube fermentations. They were like uh, two liter glass tubes. And that's how you fermented things uh, using a scientific approach. And I would go get my brewer's yeast at the, uh, uh, it was the interbrew, uh, la- so it was the Artois Brewery, Stella Artois. Right. Uh, they were the biggest brewery in Belgium at that time. And so, uh, so yeah, so we, um, you know, I'd go with another person and we'd, get uh, small kegs of yeast from them. And that would be the yeast that I would work on to do all my research. Gotcha. uh, So yeah, so I did fermentations and I did, uh, I tagged along with my professor to learn how to consult at all these different crazy uh, little breweries. And and the ones that were really unique were, to me at that time, were the, the Trappist breweries. You can see above my head, there's a little crucifix there from the Chimay Brewery. Cool. The, uh, when you go in, the brewery is really cool, and uh, there were monks there, but they had uh, lay people doing the brewing. Yeah. And, um, and then, of course, my, one of my heroes in, in the brewing world is Jean de Clerc, and he's, he's actually buried in the, the back. They have a small cemetery in back of the, the, the brewery of Chimay, and uh, he's, he and his wife are buried there. They're the only people, non-monks, they allowed to be uh, buried right there on the premises. So it's, it's really neat. He was, again, he was one of my heroes from, from wow. the brewing world. <laughs> wow, what an experience. Were you, what were you drinking at this time? I mean, obviously you have exposure to these Belgian beers that Americans, at least mainstream Americans, really wouldn't be able to access for another 10, 15 years when, you know, like at volume outside of a major city like New York or maybe LA if you're lucky, uh, Chicago if you're lucky. Uh, what were you drinking over there? Like, did you develop a taste for like the Trappist's beer in particular? Was there something that's you remember standing out to you? Yeah, I, I tried to taste as many beers as possible, and, and after I tried them, I would uh, soak the labels off and put them in a scrapbook. And to this yeah, day, yeah. I still have the scrapbook. Cool. I have several scrapbooks, and uh, so I, and I would always uh, buy repeat buy the ones that I liked, and the one that I bought a case of almost every. I'd say every two weeks was Westmall Triple. So I bought that a lot of that. That was one of my favorites. Uh, and then Belgian Whites. I, I loved the Belgian Whites that they made back then. Uh, Brugge Whitbeer uh, from, from Bruges. Um, Hoogarden was, was a decent beer back then. Mm. Uh, and it was before uh, Pierre had, uh, or no, it was, it was right about the time Pierre, uh, it, it, there was a fire 
And he didn't have enough insurance or didn't have insurance to cover it. And so he sold to Interbrew and they kind of changed things up and um, improved the brewery and everything. But the flavor for me changed just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And But there were several others that, that I thought were really good. So the Whit beers, the uh, West Mall Triple, and then uh, Cezanne Dupont. Um, those are the ones that I used to always drink. Sure. But, uh, but I, that, that's not to say they're the best, but at that time, my palate really always gravitated towards those, those three uh, styles of beer. So I can see, you know, maybe there's a little foreshadowing there. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. You don't know at the time that your palate is starting to gravitate, you know, in, in this direction. Uh, and that would be, that would prove sort of uh, fortuitous for you uh, just a little, you know, a few years later in your career. But obviously, like, you're starting to, you're starting to fall into, you know, looking back on this, you're starting to fall into a certain flavor profile. You enjoy these beers, you enjoy these whip beers, you're enjoying, you know, seeing how the Belgians are working with spice. That's really cool to, because we're about to, you know, sort of scroll forward just a minute uh, or just, I guess, a couple of years in time. Right. Uh, and talk about what happens after you or after you you know, defend your dissertation and, and earn your Ph.D. in Brussels. When do you come back to the United States, Keith? So I, I came back in 1992 mm-hmm. and then uh, I, uh, they allowed me to the university allowed me to do some more research at Coors for my PhD. Cause I, I was talking to my professor and it's like, okay, we, everything looks good, but we need to answer that question and that one. And it's like, ah, and so, so the folks at Coors luckily allowed me to finish up all the work there too. So, so between the university and Coors, I was able to devote another couple of years to oh, doing great. research. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and so I defended it in, in 1995 and got my PhD. Prior to that, as I was doing research, I was also tasked with a couple of things. One, uh, myself, another brewer and an engineer uh, designed and built the Sandlot Brewery at mm. Coors Field, uh, which is the first brewery in a ballpark in the world. And uh, that was a lot of fun because it was it was unique. And prior to that, I uh, I traveled around the Denver and uh, Western area uh, as much as I could to to look at brew pubs and kind of see what what works, what doesn't work, uh, you know, and and get an idea for designing the Sandlot. Do you remember where the idea for the Sandlot like came from? Like wh- why? I mean, obviously Coors Field that's a major sponsorship, and and Coors has long held you know that endorsement with the naming rights of the field. Uh, who got the idea to put a brewery in there? Do you remember? If I remember correctly, the uh, uh, the stadium district, uh, you know, they they said, okay, it's Coors Field. Coors is going to have the, the naming rights. And there was a little part of one of the restaurants there uh, that they said, they said, if you want, you could put a brewery there. And I believe it was Pete Coors who uh, they approached. And so he, he told the I would say at that time it was, it was like an innovation R and D marketing team. He said, you know, maybe we should look at, at putting this into the, the stadium. And so they came to us on the technical side and said, you know, we'd like to do this, uh, this, uh, little brewery over there to kind of showcase, uh, craft brewing and all that. And so that's when we got to work and number one, made sure that we could put a brewery there mm-hmm. and, and after the initial study, we said, okay, we can, it's going to be, it's going to involve a lot of work because, you know, there weren't holes in the big concrete floor, yet <laughs> right. we had to go up and down. Uh, yeah. So we had to put staircase in and all that. Um, 
had to hire the original brewmaster. His name was Wayne Wananen. He was from a little brewery called Hubcap Brewery in, in Vail. And so he was the original. Then he hired John and Tom, who became the, the brewers for a long time there. And, uh, uh, and it turned into a really neat testing facility for new, new products. And that's where I, uh, and my, my office continued to be, uh, in golden at the top of the brewery. And, uh, I, I would write recipes and get down to the sandlot, give it to the guys and say, okay, can we brew, uh, this? And, uh, we'd brew and test with fans and find out quickly if something was good or, or needed some work. Was the mandate that you had at that time, Keith, to, treat this like a pilot brewery? Like, were you explicitly tasked with, you know, innovation and R&D at that point? Do you were, like, in other words, like, you know, one way to take this would be to, hey, let's just brew batches of super fresh Coors and Coors Light, right? And and everyone at the stadium can have it, right? And it comes right off the tank. Man, that's a cool gimmick. Uh, why, like, you guys went another direction with it. Do you remember if that was something that the Coors, you know, management asked you to do, or do you remember kind of, you know, you mentioned you never earlier in our conversation, you mentioned you never wanted to get bored. You always wanted to be experimenting. Were you kind of pushing, in other words, who was, who was pushing the R and D angle there? It was, it was a little of both yeah. because Coors as a brewery wanted to get into this new thing called micro brewing. So back in the nineties, uh, you know, the, the, the word craft brewing hadn't been extensively used. Sure. Uh, people refer to these specialty beers as microbrewed beers or microbrews. And so so it, it was this whole new area for me of, of exploration. And for the folks uh, in the, the marketing area of Coors, they wanted to explore it from a marketing perspective to see if it was just a trend that would go away or if it would uh, you know, uh, stick and, and grow and become big. And um, of course, you know, looking uh, backwards, it's obvious it did stick and it became pretty big. Yeah, uh, got yeah. Got to about twelve percent of the beer market, eleven, twelve percent. So, so it became pretty decent sized. Um, and of course, Blue Moon ended up being a two million barrel a year brand, which is massive. Uh, so it's just uh, it became the biggest craft beer brand in the United States. When does Blue Moon enter the scene? I mean, you know, you're doing this R and D. You graduate. You defend. You successfully defend your dissertation once you return from Brussels. So I misspoke earlier, but you finally, you dis, you defend your dissertation after doing some final work at, at cores and using their facilities to finish your research. You're, you develop the same, you know, the schematics and you help the build out for the Sandlot brewery in Coors field in the ballpark there. You're writing recipes. Blue moon couldn't have been the first thing you wrote. Was it like, when did blue moon as we know it first hit the tanks? Actually, um, there there is there was a, a pilot brewery in Golden that mm-hmm. uh, that I used also in addition to the Sandlot. Sandlot is a ten barrel brew house. The pilot brewery in Golden is a, a thirty barrel brew house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before opening up the Sandlot in the R and D area, we had constructed a small. It was like a high tech homebrew system, five gallons, and so so we had. At least from my perspective, I had three different areas to experiment. Five-gallon stage, 10 barrels at Sandlot, and 30 barrels at the Pilot Brewery. And so I did a, a bunch of initial work on that five-gallon uh, uh, system. It was At that time, it was called the Micron Brewery. Mm-hmm. And my very first brew I ever did there was a Belgian white. It was... Uh, uh, in fact, I, I have a copy of the the paper somewhere, the original recipe. Really uh, cool, because uh, it was it was in, in 1994, and the uh, um, and we would number our brews the the year dash, and then the number of the brew 
in the in the year sequence. So so ninety four dash one was Belgian wit, and uh, uh, so the. And then number two and three were Belgian because I was trying to perfect it to the way I wanted sure, it to taste. Sure. Uh, and then it was in nineteen late nineteen ninety four that the brewery said, "You know what? In addition to Sandlot, we want to have a, a brand in this microbrewed arena to see you know how it does." So they asked me to to be the brewer, the technical guy, and then they asked uh, a guy from sales to to help with the uh, the marketing and put our heads together to create this whole new brand. Mm-hmm. And that that guy from sales uh his he was pulled in from the the middle eastern not not mid east middle east uh eastern US like his territory was like I think Ohio uh that that kind of midwest area yeah, Chicago yeah. I think so they pulled him in he was he was a young guy just like me uh his name was Jim Sabia and if you haven't heard of his name uh, look up to see who's in charge of brewing at Constellation, and you'll see. <laughs> Jim, Jim and I were the ones who launched Blue Moon back in 1995. But prior to the launch, we we were trying to figure out, you know, what what are going to be our our beers, our brands. What's it going to look like? The, the label and everything. What's the name of this thing? And uh, so I got busy on uh, the, the the recipes, the flavor profiles. And then together, Jim and I would meet and go over the name. And, and uh, the name Blue Moon was actually uh, thrown out by one of the administrative assistants. Her name was Vivi. And she she said, you know, this is kind of a cool project. Uh, beers like this and something like this only comes around once in a blue moon. Why don't yeah. we call it Blue Moon? And so we did. And uh, some of the, the senior managers, though, they, they said, well, maybe the name is Blue Moon of the beer, but the company should be called Canyon Rock Brewing company, and so, and Jim and I said uh, that doesn't quite roll off the tongue, and and we, we asked why, and they said, well, of course, for the Canyon Rock Formation that's right above the Coors Brewery in Golden, Colorado, and, and you know, it's like this this globally famous landmark that nobody knows about, <laughs> except for the folks in Golden. And right, it's a right. it's a cool thing, but it, unless you're from Golden, it's you know you don't really know about it, and yeah. and so we thought, you know. That doesn't work. And so we pushed to name this thing Blue Moon Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, and that, that stuck. That's what we registered with the TTB. And everything everything came about through that that uh, decision. And then the look and feel of the brand was Jim and I. I remember he he uh, was always pushing for a nice, uh, really almost romantic-looking Blue Moon, you know, a real sexy one and everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I wanted, at that time, I wanted a kind of an artsy-looking thing crafty thing. And so we kind of combined them to make what became Blue Moon, the, the, yeah. the, the look and feel of Blue Moon. So that's that's kind of how it started. And we launched September 14th, 1995. It was a Thursday afternoon. And in the pre- I still have the press clippings and everything sh- with Jim and I at the Sandlot showing our, you know, our Blue Moon bottles. And I thought it would be a huge press event, but you know, just a few pr- reporters showed up, and it's like, "Look, well, here's another thing that's going to flop." <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, but but it was fun for for Jim and I. And uh, uh, after a couple of years, he he was promoted on to the Coors family of brands, and so ended up uh, being in charge of Coors, Coors Light, Coors, all those. And then I was uh, doing, in addition to Blue Moon, I did a ton of research work reformulating the Coors Banquet beer, or he was called original Coors, turned original, it into yeah, Banquet yeah, beer. Yeah. Uh, I did the redid the Killian's beer, did a whole bunch of new products like the low carb Coors Edge, Aspen Edge. Uh, there's tons of new things. I, in all, I 
I, I, I estimated once that I probably developed uh, prototypes and actual market products somewhere along the lines of a couple hundred different wow. uh, unique uh, things. So, wow. uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. What was the landscape like at that time, Keith? You know, Blue Moon arrives in September of 1995. You mentioned that micro brew, you know, as it was called at that time is sort of having a heyday, right? This would be in hindsight, you know, again, we have the benefit of looking back rather than trying to predict the future in hindsight, that would be sort of the pride before the first fall, uh, of the craft brewing industry, we would see it slump at the beginning of the following decade. But at that moment in 95, micro brew was the hot thing, right? You had, uh, you mentioned Sierra Nevada earlier, obviously Boston beer company, Jim Cook is in the mix with Samuel Adams. Who else, what does, what does what is the rest of the landscape look like as you remember it? Who were the, if not competitors, who were the who were the players on the field? Uh, from a, a package perspective, yeah, those are those were some of the main ones. They weren't the biggest selling. The biggest selling microbrewed brand back then was, believe it or not, uh, George Killian's Irish Red because mm. it was it was classified as a microbrewed beer. And if you look at the volume numbers, uh, I, I think uh, Killian's was making about. 400,000 barrels. Yeah. Uh, and they were the biggest. Everybody else was much smaller. Um, and because, uh, again, people, the American palate hadn't really come about to appreciate those flavors. Uh, so so that's why they were still small, very small brands. But uh, And then I should also mention that uh, from a Blue Moon perspective, I was not allowed to brew it in Golden. I had to search around the country and find a place to brew it, a contract brewer. So Is that right? Why? Because they were afraid that if I brewed with the wheat and... Um, coriander and orange peel that it would con- cross contaminate and make Coors and Coors Light, you know, give it off flavors and everything. <laughs> so I, so I found a brewery up in upstate New York. It was called the FX Matt Brewing Company. Sure, sure. Utica. And, and back then it was FX Matt the second, uh, he was in charge. And so we signed contracts with him to brew uh, blue moon, uh, and launched out of, uh, Utica, New York. And, um, uh, and it was it was it was interesting because the brewery back then was still hadn't been redone. If you visit uh, that brewery today up in uh, Utica, they have a brand new, beautiful brew house. Fred Matt is in charge, and it's just a gorgeous little brew house. Uh, uh, I think it's a Briggs of Burton English designed brew house, um, and and it's. Back then, though, it was, it was their original copper brew house, huge classic copper kettles and everything, and that's where I brewed Blue Moon. Um, and and to answer your question about what brands were there, Blue Moon was such a small brand back then, and and FX was brewing uh, contracts for these other people, uh, Sam Adams, us, and they did brands called New Amsterdam, if you remember that brand. Uh, Rhino Chasers was another one that was big out east. Rhino Chasers. I don't remember that one. (laughs) (laughs) New Amsterdam. And I remember there were several times where I would call in to say, hey, can we get a a couple brews of Belgian white? They'd say, sorry, you're going to have to wait a couple weeks because we're brewing Rhino Chasers (laughs) or we're brewing New Amsterdam. (laughs) It's like, okay. So so those are some of the brands there. Um, And then there weren't a lot of brands that stuck around because as you alluded to, towards the end of the 90s, uh, the first crash came in the the craft industry and it slowed. It never went negative. Mm. Sales, uh, because I remember we looked at that and it never went negative. Uh, It it was going like this and then uh, sales kind of really slowed to to growing just a little bit, but 
we looked at a lot of data and it never went negative. Of course, there were some breweries that went under back yep. then, like Rhino Chasers and uh, <laughs> those ones. But yeah, we, we saw that the industry as a whole never went negative. It, was, it just slowed down a bunch. Uh, and that was the first crash. Um, and and it, it was really, a, to me, it was due to quality because there were a lot of people that got in mm. thinking they make make a quick dollar overnight and they were making really bad quality craft beer and they luckily got filtered out yeah. the good ones stayed behind and kind of rejuvenated the whole industry so that in the 2000s we saw that second wave and it just exploded uh and from a blue moon perspective that's when it was about 2001 that we saw the rebound and it just started and, and it's like our sales for blue moon went up it was exponential we were selling every drop we could make we couldn't make enough it was absolutely crazy yeah and uh and we looked around and others too were enjoying a lot of success but since we uh were able to distribute across the u.s blue moon grew uh and became a million barrel brand uh i think it was right around 2010 2008 mm. 2010 mm. Uh, and, and i mean uh, new belgium didn't reach million barrel status till when did they, it was like a couple of years ago, I think. So even they, you know, they, as big as they are, they hadn't reached that status. And it took years for Sierra Nevada to reach that too. But with Blue Moon, you know, we got it quickly and then hit the 2 million barrel a year status, which in the craft world, that's almost incredible uh, for Especially a time. at I that time. Yeah. I mean, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. When did the orange come along? The orange wheel that now is obviously, I think, pretty much visually synonymous with you know, blue moon in the minds of the American drinking public. Uh, it didn't launch with that, did it? When did the orange uh, make the appearance on the rim of the blue moon <laughs> schooner glass? Right. And if you if you uh, do some Google research, you can see that in the early days of our advertising, uh, we just had a, a shaker glass with this cloudy liquid in it. And that's how mm-hmm. we advertised, 1995, 1996. And as I was traveling the country trying to get people to to – drink Blue Moon because Blue Moon still was, it wasn't as accepted as it is nowadays. Nowadays, it's almost ubiquitous. You see it in airports, you see it everywhere. Back then, it was hard to get uh, anybody to to buy it, much less drink it. So I did Blue Moon beer dinners uh, at that time to try to get retailers and and customers to come and taste and enjoy it with food. Because in Belgium, I'd been taught that you could cook with beer, you could pair with beer. So I tried to bring that here and do that with Blue Moon. And uh, it it worked and um, slowly, but surely. Yeah. Uh, So in that first couple of years, I was doing that. As as I traveled the country, I noticed that a lot of the bars, and there weren't very many bars, but the ones that served Blue Moon, uh, some would serve it with a slice of lemon because they said, oh, we we serve Widmer Hefeweitz in here, and uh, those folks like it served with a lemon. And this is a a wheat beer too, so we're going to put lemon. And I said, well, no, this is a Belgian-style wheat beer. And they said, well, it's wheat beer. And I said, no, it's different. And I would explain, and I would say, it's brewed with coriander and orange peel. And they would say, oh... And I'd say, so do you have any oranges? And people would say, no. <laughs> They'd say, we have lemons. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I got busy. Uh, I had to create a, a, a more or less a guerrilla marketing campaign where I would get oranges. I, I First of all, look at the market to see which bars were actually selling Blue Moon because mm-hmm. it wasn't widespread. So I'd pick the ones that had good sales numbers, go there, deliver a bag of oranges or a crate of oranges, whatever it was <laughs> in that city. And I would give them a cutting board and a knife and show them. I'd say, you know, you have to schedule uh, time with, with any retailer. Uh, you can't just show up, especially as a small brand. Sure. And so I would call in. I'd say, okay, 
let's get in. And typically it was a Monday because most of these places are uh, have all their uh, team meetings on Monday. So I'd show up on a Monday and I'd, I'd, they'd say, okay, because Blue Moon was small. It was selling, but small. And they'd look, look at their watch and say, you've got 20 minutes or you've mm. got 15 minutes. And it's like, ah, okay. And I'd give the quick spiel about what it was. And I'd say, and, and I would love it if you guys can serve it like this. And I would demonstrate and chop the orange and I'd put the garnish on the glass. Or I'd, I'd pour it, then garnish it. And I'd say, and give it to the customer like that. And, and they said, well, uh, okay, if you're going to bring the, the oranges, yeah, we can do that for a little bit. And, you know, they acted like it was it was a pain for them to do that. But yeah, yeah. It, it took not just one, maybe two weeks for them to actually do that. And people in their bars would see this beer, cloudy beer coming through with an orange garnish on it. And they would say, you know, retailer or customers would say, wow, what's that? Sure. And they'd say, well, that's Blue Moon. And so they would say, well, can I try one? And, you know, of course they would try one and they'd drink it and... From my perspective, I, when I develop a beer, I like to give it what I call first sip drinkability, meaning, uh, you know, the, from the first sip, it's enjoyable. You're not going to spit it out. And so uh, so that's what I like to do. And with Blue Moon, I, I tried to go after that by designing it to have a, a sweeter profile using sweet orange instead of the typical Curacao orange that is used in Belgium. Curacao is a bitter orange. It's not the sweet orange. Uh, and then the, the coriander that they would use in Belgium is more a coriander that has a celery-like character to it. Whereas mm. I chose one that's a very fruity coriander that has almost a... When you op- open a fresh box of ground coriander for Blue Moon, you smell it. And it's almost like the smell you get from Fruit Loop cereal. You know, when you were a kid and you had Fruit Loops and opened the box and you smelled it, it was that real fruity smell. Yeah, yeah. That's the smell that's in, in the coriander for Blue Moon that I chose. Um and so I designed it that way. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it, so I, I was able to do these beer dinners and get people to try it. And uh, and eventually that, that's that's how people really, really uh, started spreading the word, you know, because they would go from, from saying, what is this? I'm not going to try that cloudy thing brewed with oats and weed and what? And, mm-hmm. and it's like they would go from being afraid of it to falling in love with it, to recommending it to their friends. Uh, and so it was this discovery beer and that orange garnish that I created in 19, it was 1997 that I started that. Uh, and so if you look at some of the, the uh, uh, Google images from back then, you'll see from 1977 onward, Blue Moon always has that orange garnish, but it was on a shaker glass. And then um, 98, I worked with our marketing team to develop that iconic 23-ounce uh, uh, Weizenbeer glass, which is actually uh, a German Weizenbeer glass that was slightly retooled to make make it into the Blue Moon glass. So I yeah. borrowed he- heavily from the Germans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drawing on your European, uh, your tour of the continent when you were over there for your PhD, you had not only the brewing expertise, but you also were drawing on some glassware expertise, it sounds like. Yeah, because in Belgium, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with Belgium as a country and as a beer drinking culture, almost every beer served in a bar has their own unique glass. Mm. And when you go to a bar, the bars will have just racks and racks of glassware. And if you order a, uh, uh, I don't know, Lindemann's framboise, they'll say, okay. And then they'll pull the bottle out and they'll search their glassware and they'll say, ah, oh, here it is. And it'll be the, the Lindemann's glass, a yeah, tall, yeah. thin flute. And they'll pour it and you'll drink it. But it's it's classic because the, the brewers over there, the the glassware accentuates the smells and the tastes of their beer. And it's critical for them that you serve it in that unique glass. And so I thought, okay, with with Blue Moon, let's do the same thing. Um, 
So it's a tall glass, 23 ounces, to accentuate the look of the of the beer because it's cloudy, hazy, and with that orange garnish, it really looks neat. And it, it kind of helps to bring that aroma in too. And when we did that, I remember we got pushback from uh, retailers and from uh, distributors saying, nobody's going to buy a 23-ounce pour. They mm. said if it was a light beer, if it was Coors Light, yes. Miller Light, yes. Bud Light, yes. But this thing, no. And it's like, let's try it. And so we did. And sure enough, people would buy this 23-ounce glass of Blue Moon, and it spread. And so that became the standard for Blue Moon. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, but we had to, it's like, from the start, I remember I, I had to defend that brand all the way from the start. Everybody wanted to kill it off from the leadership at Coors all the way down. People literally would try to kill off the bread. And really? Would, oh, people, the first few years, uh, it was a pain for the brewery to, because it was this tiny brand. Yeah. And it's like, what what are we going to do with this? And and we were growing nicely, but on a tiny, tiny base. And um, and people tried to kill it off. And it was, uh, I would do everything I could to keep that brand alive. Yeah. And uh, the first, first 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99, Everything, even launching the very first pumpkin beer in the U.S. nationally. Um, I remember our first year, we made about 5,000 barrels. Second year was about 4,000. So it was 95, 96, 97. By 1999, I remember looking at the records, we'd only brewed about 60 or sold 60 barrels. And I remember at that time, they were saying, they were saying, please kill this brand off. This costs us way more to make it than we're even earning. And it's like, I said, no, I said, I said, pumpkin's going to be a big deal. And so I pushed and kept it. And I said, it's only a seasonal. And I tried everything. And so, so the brewery luckily let me keep that brand. And to this day, we still make, or Blue Moon does. I say we, but (laughs) but I I retired, but Blue Moon still makes uh, pumpkin ale every season. And it grew to become the biggest pumpkin beer brand in the U.S. Wow. uh, But it was was almost killed off uh, in 1999 at the end of that uh, first phase of the craft beer revolution, if you will. Don't forget, listener, this was part one of our two-part episode about Blue Moon with Keith Villa. There's plenty more to this story, so remember to join us next week for part two appear directly following this one in your podcast feed. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.